the early attack we did, which was successful, was putting a rubber ducky in line with the charging cables at a conference table. And so, you know, it's really common. Googlers sit down, they plug in their laptop, jump on video chat, you know, in all these different conference rooms around Google campuses. That's just a proof of concept. We put a, a rubber ducky with an exploit in it that surveyed the machine, identified the OS, and then planted a, an implant within that computer on the host. And so, you know, that attack requires some sort of insider access, whether you're mm-hmm maintenance or, you know, a contractor, whether you're a full-time employee, like to plant that would require some, someone sort of having physical access to the, uh, to the campus. As an IT leader responsible for service reliability, you know how critical it is to maintain uptime and responsiveness. Protecting and growing your business's reputation depends on it. IT leaders like us know that when we find what works, Everything just flows. In this podcast, we'll explore the possibilities of service reliability today and tomorrow, and hear from those driving innovation and consistent performance. I'm Sean McDermott, founder and CEO of Winward Consulting Group. Welcome to Find Flow. Before the episode gets started, we've created a gift for you. It's a short guide called Nine Ways to Accelerate Your Service Reliability Strategy. As a leader in IT, doing everything you can to contribute to business performance, this is the perfect start to optimize your service availability. You can get it now over at winward.com. That's W-I-N-D-W-A-R-D.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Fine Flow Podcast. I'm your host today, Sean McDermott. And today we have Terrence Bennett with us, who is the general manager of Dream Factory, an API management company. So welcome to the podcast. Terrence, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, yeah, so a little bit about me. Went to went to the Naval Academy now many years ago, and it started my career in the Navy. So I Started off as a surface warfare officer on a ship out of Pearl Harbor and did that for two years, kind of cut my teeth in engineering before moving over into intelligence work and did that for about five years before deciding I was ready to uh, to pivot out into private sector and, and join Google. And so I was able to use some of that experience from, from the Navy and from Intel at Google, first joining their cloud team and then ultimately their red team. So I was a program manager on the Google red team, helping to plan and organize and capture the those exercises. Did that for two years and then moved over into the startup world, which is where I am today. Excellent. Excellent. So so do, are the uh, NCIS shows and all of that pretty accurate? Yeah, I spent a year and a half at NCIS. Sadly, no. There's nobody <laughs> in, uh, in six-inch. I never saw anyone in six-inch boots. There is, you know, there, there's some sort of tiebacks. Apparently, the, the crew, like the organizing crew of the show and the and the actors came a few times to actually like tour the building, but beyond that, there's beyond the name really. There's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing accurate about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's never as accurate as Hollywood likes it likes to portray it. So, so great. So you know, as you know, and we've talked before, you know, this podcast is really all about service reliability. And and when we think about service reliability, there's three primary pillars. You know, the first pillar is service management. Second one is operations management, and the last one is security operations. I really wanted to kind of focus on security operations with you, because when we think about security operations, you know, there's a lot of aspects of our monitoring and bringing data in, and then you kind of think about incident response management, and then you think about re- vulnerability management. 
And I think your experience at Google on the red team, I'd love to kind of dig into that. So I, before we get into the Dream Factory and the API management stuff, which I'm super interested in doing, let's go back a few years and let's talk about your, your, your experience at Red Team. So tell me a little bit about what you know, Red Teams do. Like I have an idea and I have some friends who've been on Red Teams. Like explain like what a Red Team really does. Yeah, absolutely. So a Red Team is a group of, of typically it's internal white hat hackers. So they're security engineers, you know, technically that's what their job title is. And they have a really strong background in um, in typically the networks they're looking at and the products they're looking at and how um, and how they all sort of fit together. And so the red team is as a concept really based around the exercise, which is which is those actors deliberately attacking uh, an organization, in this case, Googlers attacking the Google infrastructure um, to try and get in with a specific motive. And so a lot of what I did and what was really important, and and I think I'm really proud of the team for kind of keeping our eye on the prize when it came to this, is always going about an exercise with a very specific objective. Because we're not there to find vulnerabilities, right? There's a bunch of different ways to find vulnerabilities. Red teaming is, is not an efficient way, and it's definitely more, much more expensive than it needs to be, right? Red teaming is about simulating an actual real world threat. And in the real world, you can you can spend millions of dollars and build state of the art um, uh, security infrastructure. You essentially, build your tall build your wall really, really tall. But if you leave the back door open, it doesn't matter, right? They can come right, right through. Kind of imagine those line type of thing, right? And so, red teaming is about taking the big picture view and approaching it from a threat actor's perspective. Because when we talk about cybersecurity, we're talking about real actors, real people who are, who are committing real attacks against infrastructure. And, and the only way to actually deeply understand those attacks and those people and how they're going about doing that is to simulate them. And so we would start with the drawing board, look at current events and ask the question of like, what's a realistic attack right now based on a target that we ultimately want to want, want to look at? And work we'd work our way backward picking a threat actor based on typically eight, like APT breakouts. And we would step through looking at their TTPs and understanding how they would go about an attack. And we would reverse engineer an attack based on that. And at every step, we would stop and ask ourselves, is this sort of true and honest to the threat actor and to the environment? And so as internal Googlers, we can go about it sort of doing tons of extra research and, and kind of finding whatever holes we want. Um, but is that sort of honest to the exercise and honest to what, what's realistic? So we're constantly kind of playing this balance of trying to be successful, right? And fi find those vulnerabilities and, and accomplish an objective while also being sort of true to the task. Because at the end of the day, we're going to write the whole thing up in a long report and we're going we're gonna to share it with the team we attacked and we're going to share it with the blue team, detection response, and we're going to share it with, with all these folks and if we're not being sort of honest the whole way through, they're going to poke holes in and say, well, this is just unrealistic. What's the point here? Yeah, that's super interesting. I think you made a really good point, And that is Red Team is not about finding vulnerabilities, right? Because it's if you think about it, and what, what I'm hearing from you is if you're going to basically say what's going on in the kind of the world today is these types of attacks, uh, you don't really need to go find all the vulnerabilities. You just need to kind of, you need to find the vulnerabilities that are related to that path that you're going to go down, mm -hmm. right? And there's other teams that are going out and doing vulnerability scanning and things like that. But but the key thing is, is that you're finding real world exploitable in 
scenarios that are real world scenarios. And I like to, I, I, I love the idea of what you say is you got to be true to your, true to how a hacker might think about it and what they would do and not just kind of make up stuff and be like, well, we did this. And then people are like, yeah, but that's never going to happen. Like, that's just mm -hmm. like, why are you guys spending money doing this when, you know, that scenario or that path they would have never taken you just you have like inside information that they never would have had so like how do you exactly and that and that happens all the time right where like you can find a vulnerability but the there's so many assumptions built into that knowing that and being able to exploit that that it's actually quite unrealistic to, act, to see in the wild whereas you will find kind of low-hanging fruit that is that is exploitable and that could be a real vulnerability right so it's about finding those and, ex and executing exercises around those so when you think about red team, is a red team really more in the case of your Google team? But you know, I've heard red teams can be pretty pretty expansive, right? Pretty broad. They can be doing physical security, access security, things like that. Did you guys take that into consideration, like badging and access to physical locations and things like that? Was that part of your red team strategy? So I guess yes and no. So I, you know, it's been now almost two years since I left, but I still stay in touch with a bunch of folks on the team. We're one of many red teams at Google. There's there's one that looks at physical security. There's one that looks at data centers. There's our team. There's one that looks at privacy. And so there are, you know, it's a big company. There's, there are sort of fiefdoms. And so we, knowing and coordinating with those teams, we, we did look for opportunities to, to actually run exercises together. But for the most part, if we got a really good idea and we wanted to execute on it, but we realized, ah, oh, this isn't really kind of our scope, we would just hand over the fence. And, and often, you know, with that, all the research and, and sort of some of the ideas that we come across with it. So, you know, privacy is a great example, right? Google is, has their fingers in a ton of different stuff. They obviously have tons of user data. Over the years, it's, it's become obvious that there's some ways that the way the these systems sort of interact and, and integrate, you can essentially hack the system and, and pull out data that you shouldn't have access to or wasn't intended to have access to, right? And so there's, there's privacy-related red team exercises that are run to look for those kinds of things and to kind of get ahead of that before users find them or attackers exploit them. We did play some games with badging. Unfortunately, like, you know, badging technology is just not very kind of robust and there's hmm. not much really, there's not much fun to have there and there's not much to really prove. So, you know, we definitely focus on infrastructure, on core sort of Google infrastructure. We're often looking at um, backend systems, right? Like how is it that, this, you know, these sort of uh, crown jewels of Google data, how are they stored? How can we better understand um, that technology from an attacker's perspective and then try and get inside there and steal it and exfil it? And, and so that's sort of what we were more sort of focused on. So when you started doing red team exercises, are you saying that some of them were simulating outside hackers trying to get in, but some of it was actually simulating inside, inside threats? Uh, yeah, to a certain degree, not specifically sort of insider. There's actually an insider team that looks at all that. We were we we would run exercises that would that would look at threats related to insider attacks. So, for instance, an early attack we did, which was successful, was putting a rubber ducky in line with the charging cables at a conference table. And so, you know, it's really common. Googlers sit down, they plug in their laptop, jump on video chat. You know, in all these different conference rooms around Google campuses. That's just a proof of concept. We put a, a rubber ducky with an exploit in it that surveyed the machine, identified the OS, and then planted a to implant within that that computer on the host. And so that you know that attack requires some sort of insider access, whether you're mm -hmm. 
maintenance or you know a contractor whether you're a full-time employee like to plant that would require some someone sort of having physical access to the uh to the campus well that's kind of interesting so how many people actually plugged into the rubber ducky like oh, dozens if you sit down at the desk and you plug in your laptop well you think about that right you think about that like at a starbucks too right that's kind of scary right you could just do some stuff at starbucks and you know the starbucks people wouldn't even know oh absolutely you would have no clue and especially with USB-C, right? So. Uh, and USB-B to a certain degree as well. So you know, that actually, I think, was a, was a good example to a lot of people of how like, you have to sort of be careful and, and you can't take these simple things for granted like, like charging cables, right? And so they, they make special charging cables that have a, a button on them and you can essentially bypass, you can turn off the, the data link capability of the cable if you're charging from an unknown source and just get raw power, right? So there's, there's out of these exercises came ideas and ultimately workarounds and, and protection. Yeah, super interesting. I, I find I find this stuff really interesting. Let's move on and let's start talking about API management. And you know, one of the things that you know you and I talked about before this was in our world, right? Service reliability, we've got, you know, we've got customers that got 50 to hundred different tools, right? I mean, you came out of the security world, right? I mean, how many security tools do you actually have inside of a security estate, right? I mean, you got endpoint protection and virus protection and firewalls and and all kinds of stuff, right? Cloud brokers now. So for us, you know, and one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on this podcast is to talk about, you know, talk about API management because in our world, we're, we're con- the more we can integrate things together, the more we can get data flowing and the more we can flow data, the better our end-to-end, end-to-end automation can be. And the better our end-to-end automation allows us to provide higher levels of service and really drive drive uh, drive down response times, drive up availability times, right? And, you know, that's so key in our area. But I'd love to kind of talk to you about API management because it's so key in, in our world and, and how we integrate all these applications together. So, so tell me a little bit about what Dream Factory is doing around API management, and then, uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think most, most of your guests are probably familiar with API management. API management... For the most, like for many people, actually means the um, the management of inbound APIs that your your company or your application is ingesting. But API management also is is the tool set to manage your own APIs. And so Dream Factory is on the ladder. It's a I like to call it API management and generation tool. So what you the way it works is you set it set it up within your environment. You can connect it to almost any backend database or even network source, and it generates APIs. Why is that? Why is that powerful? Well, a lot of legacy systems have direct connectors into databases. And so when you hear about some massive breach of a uh, of a either IT provider or you know cell, cell phone provider or any number of different companies, you often are talking about front end application being compromised and then the entire database it's connected to being compromised as well. And that's because they don't have a standard sort of REST API security control set up in between. And so that's that's kind of the big aha moment that that most of our customers are having, and 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 what's bringing them to to like Dream Factory, where not only can they very quickly set up and integrate tools to make their life easier and and reduce that custom coding and, and connecting, but they also get all those built-in security controls around role-based access and rate limiting and the ability to roll API keys in you know instantaneously and stop attacks as they're happening custom scripting and authentication 
across you know the entire platform. So it's a really exciting space because a lot of people are kind of waking up to this reality of what I call defense in depth. And this is obviously not a new term, but it's, it's the fact that you have to assume at a certain level that your, your application, that something related to your infrastructure is going to be compromised. And you have to be making those, those thinking two, three, four steps ahead of an attacker and thinking, well, let's assume this application is breached. What are the things I should be doing now to mitigate that breach, that breach as it's happening? So that like T-Mobile was breached in January, 38 million records were compromised. That front end had been compromised, but they had rate limiting set up. That breach probably wouldn't have been newsworthy, right? Because a relatively small amount of data would have been exfilled before red flags were, were triggered and the SOC got involved and they shut they, they shut down the API key or rolled the rolled the key. And so that's that's sort of the the side of kind of API management that I'm looking at and that our customers are excited about. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in the early 2000s, I started a company called RealOps. And it, this is why this is like so, so true to me, is we basically were a network management OSS system integration platform with a workflow engine. So our mission was basically to go inside of an organization, connect all these applications together and bring and really build end-to-end automation, right? And not just not just automating tasks, right? Because a lot of Knox and SOCs have, you know, written scripts in Perl and things like that and execute a task to do X, Y, Z. We wanted to really build end-to-end automation that may actually have to go through 25 different steps and access four or five different databases and make decisions along the way and then ultimately come out on the other end with some some result. But man, the the building of adapters for us was was so hard, right? Because this was before you know RESTful API. This was before um, really any of that, any of the new technology. So we had to literally build every single API ourselves, and and these adapters, and they were just you know hard coded, and it was really really tough. And that was that was a scaling scaling issue for us. Where if we had something like this, you know, we could have been building APIs so much quicker and managed them all better and things like that. So. So when you talk to customers now about um, the security side of this, you know what are the what are like the three or four things that they're really kind of focusing in on of what they're what they're looking for you guys to help them with. So typically, what it is is we they've got some sort of legacy system, some system that works, right? It could be a 1972 IBM mainframe, like one of our customers is connecting to. It could be a relatively modern SQL Server. Um, or, or sort of group of servers. And what they want to do is expose that data in a secure way. And, and that's sort of the heart of the issue. A lot of, a lot of systems aren't connected across enterprises, across networks, or obviously the internet, because out of, of fear, how do you do that securely? Right? Do I want to punch a hole in my firewall and, and put a direct connector into it? Yeah, you, you know, set up an SSH tunnel, and you can do that relatively securely. And there's <laughs> thousands of companies doing that, right? But there's a better way, and the REST API is the way to do that. And the way you can serve that data out really cleanly is is via some sort of API layer within your your infrastructure. So, so it, you know, you asked for kind of three examples. I would say, um, how can you? Maybe the first one is how can I do this with an established technology that that's industry trusted? And to me, that the REST API is that. And the second and third is how can I do this and and build security controls in place with authentication, so I know exactly who has access and logging so I can actually audit that access. And then around the actual API itself, rate limiting, 
and role-based access. And when I say role-based access, I know that can mean different things to different people, depending on sort of the environments and how you've used it. With an API, it's able to say, this application doesn't need access to the whole backend, even if it's connected to the, you know, via an API. It only needs access to three, these three columns, right? These, this specific data. And actually, you know, this column, we can obfuscate a bunch of that data. Let's say, obfuscate the credit card, right? Everything but the last four. And so that's all the things you can, that are everyone, you know, people are doing every day with APIs. And a tool like Dream Factory just allows you to do it really fast and easy. And in many cases, with no code. I think that hopefully that explains that kind of breaks it down. Yeah, no, that's good. So does Dream Factory, does your API management allow you to obfuscate that, that column? Or, I mean, do you have the logic in there and say, okay, this is a credit card column and we're only going to expose through that RESTful API the last four digits? I mean, does your, does your, does your software do it at that, at that layer? So we have a server-side scripting engine in both, both Python and, and PHP that allows you to do that. And, and my team is happy to sit down and, and we help customers every day with this kind of thing. More and more, we're actually you know, building those scripts with ChatGPT just to kind of give us a framework. And then it's really quite easy to, to build in all that logic. But yeah, like the credit card obfuscation example, I think is actually listed on our web, website. Yeah. So, so when you think about... So walk me through, like, I've been around the block for a while, right? I've been in IT for 30-some <laughs> years, right? And I remember, you know, I mean, I was in IT before there was an internet. So I'm going to want to, like, kind of connect into, like, the example you gave of an IBM, you know, mainframe. So how do you connect in, how does your software, like, literally interact with, you know, a legacy application like that, like a DB2 database mm-hmm. or something like that? How, like, is there a server on the front end? And, and like, how, do, how does it work? So in the case of DB2, we actually have a direct connector. So we're just, uh, it's a JDBC connector that pipes right into the DB2. In the case of the S370, I actually wasn't on that project, but we had to build sort of an abstraction layer in front of the S370, in front of the that, that IBM mainframe, and serve the data out then from that abstraction layer into, into Dream Factory. But it was pretty straightforward. You know, we, we actually built it for the customer. So this is a to kind of give some context, uh, State Department of Transportation, they've got a bunch of modern Oracle databases that have the vast majority of data, but there were some, there's some key data on this old IBM mainframe. Uh, six, seven years ago, they didn't have budget to pull it, to, to rip it out. And so as they started having this modernization conversation, they realized, like, we don't know how we can do this with the budget we have. And all the quotes we're getting are sort of astronomical, right? Like rip everything out and start over. It's obviously, that's also high risk. They found us and we sort of told them this other story of like, well, how about you piecemeal? How about you you build that front-end DMV app that you know you need? Um, and then we'll connect it to all of your existing databases, including the S370. And then over time, you can upgrade that. And so I actually just met with that that state department of transportation and they got the budget. In three years, they're going to rip out the IBM and we're going to work with them through that that modernization and, and whatever the replacement is. But Dream Factory connects both to the um, IBM mainframe and to those Oracle databases and serves that data out via one REST API to this web application that's sitting within the DMV and customers are, you know, you've been to a DMV, you walk up and there's a monitor and there's a little mouse and you, you do what you have to do. And the the old way was literally um, every single person had to talk to a clerk and that clerk was writing out pieces, slips of paper with data that needed to be updated. And then there'd be a stack of slips of paper in the day that somebody took down to the mainframe and manually input. And so you're talking about like a massive efficiency increase. Uh, not to mention, it's just um, like how demoralizing that is that for employees to have 
you know, someone pulls the short straw and has to go down and update the date, you know, database in the basement this day, Friday or whatever. So, so you're saying that DMV employees are demoralized? I've, I've literally never heard that before. <laughs> you know, I was just at a public sector event in Sacramento, and uh, the one thing I heard everyone say and came up more than anything else was employee retention. And so a lot of the conversation about modernization is actually around how do we build systems that people actually want to work with that aren't so demoralizing and so frustrating that they one day just throw up their hands and say, I can't do this. This is insane, right? Like people want to serve, right? I served in the military. I believe the people who serve in the public sector, public sector organizations are just serving in another way. And they, I think they want to give back in meaningful ways. But, you know, these organizations, governments have to kind of meet them halfway and, and come to the table with with a work experience that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, so I live in Florida, and I will say I, I just moved here a couple of years ago. And props, whatever you want to say about Florida, whatever opinions you have, the DMV is amazing. And you make an appointment, you go in, you get called in like two minutes, and you're in and out. So they they're doing something right with the DMV. But I think that you, I think you hit on something really, really important, right? And when people talk about digital transformation or modernization, whatever you want to call it, the the reality is, is that, you know, there's kind of two key aspects of success for digital transformation. One is innovation and one is reliability, right? You've got to be able to build something that's innovative, but in the end, it also has to be reliable, right? And, you know, when we think about that here at Windward, and we were talking about, especially around kind of service management, one of the first areas we talk about is user experience, right? And that user experience is not just, you know, colors and, and fonts, things like that. It's the workflow of understanding how people get their work done, right? And the companies that are going in, like, the you know, these state governments and really thinking about who is our end user, right? It's the employees, right? It's the workers, the field users, field people, or, or the, you know, the people behind the desks when you go to the DMV, what do we need to do to make them more efficient and make them really more engaged in their in their in their positions in their jobs? And that comes down to thinking about how do we how do we really think about the user experience, right? And I mean, I've had certain examples where I, you know, when I sold real ops in the end, we sold it to BMC, and I went to work at BMC for a year, and some of their systems were just so bad, you know, like their travel management system. I mean, we used to use Expedia. And we'd be in and out in Expedia in no time, you know, making flights. And then we go to, you know, their travel management system. And it was just awful. And I couldn't find flights. And I couldn't, and it would be so frustrating because I'd spend, you know, an hour and a half trying to book a flight when I do it in five minutes before, you know, and it's just really super frustrating. And, and I think that's a really key thing that, you know, CIOs need to be thinking about now is, you know, who is the customer we're targeting? And it could be your internal employees. And what do they need to do their jobs better? Absolutely. And it gets into a conversation around lean methodology and building building an MVP and then allowing people to actually get their hands on it and figuring out how they actually use it. And then going back to the table and making changes. And Because far too much software, especially at the enterprise and, and government level, it's just built sort of in a black box, you know, and then it's like deployed. Here you go. Have fun. And they've completely got the flow wrong, right? And you, And people spend the next 20 years having to hack bureaucracy around Software. Yeah, we, we call it organizational change management, right? And it really comes down to adoption, like, right? you know, IT projects fail all the time because of just adoption, right? And they don't mm -hmm. think about, you know, they build these, like you said, they build them in a the black box and they don't really think about it. 
how it's going to be used every day, how to train people, how to get them onto the system, how to get them adopted, how to get them excited about it, right? And that's a big, big challenge, I think, in the IT world. So, well, Terrence, it's been great. It was a pleasure having you on. This is like super interesting stuff. And again, close to my heart with all the you know integration work that we do and the things that I've built in the past and bringing all these systems together. I'm fully dialed into what you guys are doing over there. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. For show notes and links related to everything discussed today, access to archive episodes, and to download the free guide, Nine Ways to Accelerate Your Service Reliability Strategy, head to winward.com. That's W-I-N-D-W-A-R-D.com.